Uh, I do have a lot of questions from you, especially coming from the mind of a 17-year-old. But I think we should start with, what was the situation for you like growing up? Well, I was born in Vienna, Austria, okay? We had a family of uh, five children, mother and father. Unfortunately for both of us, for all of us, my parents both died when we were 11. My father had cancer and my mother had pneumonia. So we were all sent to orphanages. And that lasted until Hitler invaded Austria. So we were called, I was called into the orphanage and said, the school wants to see you now, the regular school. And the teacher closed the door and he said, I'm sorry to tell you, you play football for the school, you're very valuable, but the orders came down that no Jewish teachers or students can continue after today. You all must leave. And he said to me, listen, if I were you, I'd get the hell out of Austria because you have no future here. Made sure that nobody looked. He gave me a big bar of chocolate and said, good luck to you. And did you feel like you were on your own after that? Well, you know, we, we have been technically on our own since my parents died, you know. But here we had some other people like us, and, uh, and we had to leave, go back into Vienna. The place was outside Vienna, and a, a nice lady who knew my mother gave us a room. Now, a few days after Hitler came, my brother, older brother Leo, was arrested and with the other students and sent to a concentration camp. A few days after that, a German officer, SS officer, threw his boots at my brother and said, Hey, little Jew, I want you to get these boots like new when I come back. He must have done a good job because he said to him, From now on, you will look after me only. Clean my cabin, make coffee, clean my belts. After about four weeks, he called him into his office and says, I have been promoted to Obersturmbahnführer and being sent to Berlin, but I'm giving you this letter and make sure you always carry it. It says, I have checked and interviewed this young man he is not an enemy of the state, and any help you can give him would be appreciated, signed, Obersturmbahnführer DSS. And he said, always carry it with you. You never know when you need it. So I think, I think that shows that even through all right. of, yes. even through the most like evil of places, there's still people That's that, right. are, yeah. that are good. But I, I want to go back now to something that colored my life. Whenever I see evil done, I think back of this particular day. Christmas Eve, 1933. I looked out the window, it was a beautiful night. Stopped snowing, and we lived in a very poor area. So I decided to walk over 
where the rich people live. Just a look. Yeah. I came across a wonderful big house and a picture window, and I could see a Christmas tree lit and mother and father and a little girl and a boy whom I knew because he played soccer with me. I wanted to have a closer look, but I trod on a twig, and the twig hit the window. So the lady came out and said, What are you doing out in the cold, little boy? Come on inside, I'll give you some hot chocolate and Christmas cake. And then when I finished, she said, Do your parents know that you are out by yourself late at night so far from home? I said, well, my father's in the hospital and my mother is always with him because the doctors told her he has terminal cancer and he hasn't got long to live. How old were you at this time? Pardon, my father? How, how old were you at this time? Nine. You were nine exactly years old. nine. So the lady listened to me and said, how many brothers and sisters do you have? I said, I have three sisters at home, and my brother is away in school somewhere else. So she and her husband disappeared while we were drinking all kinds of drinks and chocolates. And then she came out with packages that big. Each one had a name on it, my sisters and me. And there's a letter for your mother. What's her name? I said, Rachel. She said, my husband and son will take you home. So they took us home. We opened the parcels. Anything a kid could ever want was in there. Books, chocolates, nuts, money to buy lunches. And my mother came home about an hour later. It was all on the floor. She said, where did you get that from? It says, the Greens gave us. She said, that's unbelievable. It says, oh, mommy, there's a letter addressed to you. And I could see her still crying. She said, well, this is mommy. She says, you won't believe this. It says, dear Rachel, we are so f lucky. We have everything, a big house, our kids are good. My husband earns a lot of money. And at this Christmas, we want to share something with you. And my mother said, there's enough money in this envelope for us to pay the rent and live comfortably for nine months. So when I think of evil that is done so often, I think back of these wonderful people who did this to strangers. How do we go from something where there's such a community of, of love to something to like what happened a couple of years after? Well, because you had a man who needed somebody to blame for all the terrible things that were happening in Germany. And this name was Adolf Hitler. So can we talk about what happened after with, with the kinder transplant. Right, right. So anyhow, when Kristallnacht, you heard of Kristallnacht? You know what? Okay, well, you should know this. Kristallnacht was November the 9th and 10th, where every Jewish shop or synagogue, every synagogue in Vienna was burned. And 
people were jumping out of windows and they had us marching through the street. We each had to go in front of an SS officer and he said, where are your parents? I said, my parents are dead. He says, get out that way, my brother and I. Everybody was going out that way, but my brother took out the letter from the SS student and he showed it to him. And he said, you know what? You go out the other way. So you got to go with your brother? Yes, with my brother. So he says, go out the other way. We were concerned because only two people went out the other way. The next morning we found out that all those who left by the left, the original one, were sent to the Polish border or to a concentration camp. So the letter saved us. Now what happened? The whole world knew what happened on Crystal Night. We had correspondence, but there was an organization in England, a Christian organization. The name was the Quakers. Have you heard of the yeah, Quakers? Well, they, with the help of Mr. Churchill and Dr. Schoenfeld, arranged for Parliament to pass a law that England would take in 10,000 children, not their parents, just their children. That probably creates a lot of problems, too. That's right. In other words, just children. So my brother also had to go to the orphanage where my three sisters were because they had to close. But they said to him, we are fortunate we have a small place, an orphanage in Paris, England, in Paris, France. And he signed that it's okay to send them. On December the 31st, 1938, my brother and I got onto that train. Terrible events took place. Were the children on the kinder transport aware of what the situation was? I'm just coming to that. And they said, uh, Mommy, Mommy, please don't send me. From now on, I'm going to be good. You know, they thought maybe they're sending him away because they didn't behave. So the mother took her off. The father says, no, we promise we'll be in England. In a few weeks, we'll be reunited. So the train was only full of children, except the Quakers had sent some young women to hold the children because they were all crying, okay? Now, 69% of those who went on the kinder transport never saw their parents again. Now, we arrived in England. It was a Christmas holiday. We went into a huge place. They gave us, I still remember, cornflakes and cream. I'd never seen that before. I ate three or four portions. And a volunteer who came to help went home and told her son and husband that what was happening. It says, and the husband and the son said, why don't we take him in? Why don't we take them? Okay. And they both agreed. And they took me in. Then you showed the picture oh, up there. The uh, the picture of... The no, no, no. You showed it on there. Their picture is in the... Let me see where I can find it. 
uh, you show that on the uh, main screen. Uh, Ross, can you pull up the picture of uh, the one that's titled, hold up, the one that's titled number two? Uh, I should have had over here. Okay. Here, here it is. The picture is up there. Uh, Ross. Yeah. Uh, can you pull up picture yeah. two? Is that the picture? Yes. They are the people who adopted me. Lovely, lovely people. And they sent me to school with their son in London. And I remember the first day in school. The principal said, students, we have somebody special here. He has suffered enough. He's a refugee from Austria, from Vienna. Be nice to him. The good part is that he's a fabulous soccer player, so we'll probably play for the school. So we had this education, and then war broke out. He was eight months older than I, so he uh, joined the Air Force. Well, how old was he? He was just about 18 and two months. Okay, and I was uh, 17 and two months or something. I tried to join. They said, no, I weighed 117. They said, first of all, you go back to kindergarten. You're too young. But about... Five months later, I did join the army. They took me then. Now that's that's pretty crazy for me to think about because I'm 17 and something months now, and I could never imagine. That's right. Going to the army Many, uh, with your mother's permission, you could join at 17 and a half. So what made you want to do that? Because I knew what the Nazis did. So I said, "Hey, it's my turn to fight them." I mean, that's it. You know what? They were bombing night and day in England. It was horrible. And you know what? <clears throat> I have the greatest admiration of the British people of those times. Night and day they were bombed. They went to work. They still had their sense of humor. They were rationed. Unbelievable. You love to have one egg a week, and everything else was rationed. I've heard that even the king and queen stayed in England. Uh, somebody said to the king and queen, why don't you go to the Commonwealth, go to Australia or Canada? They said no. And I still have the picture in my head of them walking through the East End where they were bombed a few days ago and shaking hands with people and consoling them. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Um. So... So you were then in the Pioneer Corps? Yeah. What happened was this. Because I was classified an enemy alien, I could only join the Pioneer Corps, the people who did whatever, uh, dig ditches, build bridges. But I don't tell that very often, but I'm going to tell you. My first day in the Army. I was there in time for lunch, uh, around 11.30. 
and a big Irishman sat next to me. And he said, hey, kid, do you have any money? I said, I have 10 shillings. That's how much he gave me. He said, you and I are going out tonight. I said, I can't go out. I don't have a uniform. Leave it to me. I'll look after everything. He bought me that uniform. It was too big. The hat was too big. And he said, don't let's go out the front. Let's go out the back. I didn't know anything about this. Anyhow, we went into a pub, and he said, what are you drinking? I said, I'll have a lemonade. I have not been drinking. No, no, you can't. You're a soldier now. He gave me one of those English beers that was, I drank it, and they gave me another one. But then I was a little tipsy. And he said to me, now I'm going to have you looked after. I had no idea what he meant. Suddenly I see this old woman of about 30 come into the pub with lipstick all over her, and she took my hand and she says, now, dearie, I will be nice to you. I will look after you. So she took me outside. Luckily, in a way, there were the military police were there with their red hats. And they yelled at me, soldier, put your hat on, button up your uniform. And she was drunk, so she says, F you. Unfortunately, I repeated it. So they took me, threw me in a truck, and took me to jail. Put the cold water on me, and the next day, they gave me a uniform, shaved me, and took me in front of the major. And they read the charges, leaving the camp without permission, being drunk and disorderly, threatening the police officer, and being a disgrace to the army. So he turned to the sergeant major and said, how long has this man been in the army? He said, sir, he came yesterday. He said, well, I will teach you a lesson. At four o'clock, when you finish your training, you're gonna go into the kitchen with a little potato peeler and peel potatoes till eight o'clock at night. Did you end up doing it? Pun? Did you end up doing it? Yeah. Uh, and uh, Anyhow, there's a few others who are punished, okay? Anyhow, the, sec the third night, um, an officer came. He had my name, and he says, uh, I see here that you played soccer for your school, and you're a good soccer player. How would you like to play for the Army? I says, I can't, sir. I have to peel potatoes. He says, no, don't worry. He says, I will look after that. That's the end of my potato peeling. <laughs> well, so there you are. So you got to play soccer for the army. Yes. How did that translate over to you being, be flying the... Uh, well, well, what happened was this. When I finished training in the Pioneer Corps, I went to the sports officer and said, listen, I went through all these terrible times in Vienna I saw it all. I don't want to be building bridges. I want to be in a fighting unit. So he transferred me to the tank corps. And there I met a young Welsh boy. We became friends. And then the glider pilot regiment <laughs> sent out words saying they need volunteers 
for the glider pilot regiment. The, they asked the regiment to send their best people or their worst, whichever. Yeah, Anyhow, right. the Welshman and I volunteered. 700 people volunteered for the 50 pilots they needed. Now, we trained a lot, but I remember the worst day was in August. It was 94 degrees. We had to go on a 10-mile route march with all the equipment of full uniform. After about three or four or five miles, most of the people went. That was it. The 70 of us were left. And out of those 70s, they picked 50. So he and I both became... But I have to tell you about the first day when I was flying. We took up on a tiger moth. I think you showed the picture there somewhere. Um, Ross, can you pull a picture for Huh? I'm talking to Ross. Oh, yeah. Tiger moth. Is that yeah, the plane? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said, hey, kid, have you flown before? I said, no. He says, hold on. He turned the plane upside down and I was hanging by my straps, and he turned left, right, up, down. After about five minutes, he turned it back. He says, can I ask you a very personal question? I said, yeah, what is it? How is your underwear? I said, sir, it's still dry. He said, you'll make a good pilot. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Can I have a drink of water? Yeah, here, that's fine. So how do we go from... You go from wherever you want to what? To D-Day? Yeah, to D-Day. Okay. We trained very difficult training. Very, very. And... We were originally supposed to go on June the 5th, but there was such a storm that they canceled it. Rommel actually uh, thought it's going to be postponed, so he went to Germany for his wife's birthday. But on, Ju the, big, on the night of June the 4th, our officers were told, you will be able to go on the 6th. So we were assembled on the, the 4th, and all of us, Lieutenant General, uh, we're gonna, uh, what, who? Browning. Yeah, yeah, Browning, said to us, listen, guys, this is it. You remember the bombing? Uh, of London, the burning of Warsaw and Coventry, it's our turn. But because you will be the first ones in, you may never come back. So here is paper and pencil. You can write your last letter maybe to your parents, your sweetheart, and your friends. It became very quiet, and I did. Who'd you write to? I wrote to, first of all, my, my, the family who adopted me. 
and I thank them for giving me a chance, a new life. I wrote to my stepbrother, Lori. The letter found him in Burma. It went, and then I wrote to my three sisters, not knowing that two had already died in Auschwitz, but a very wonderful Christian family on a Sunday said, did you see what's happening to this girl? We can't adopt all of them. How about if we adopt one? My younger sister, that's on the picture here somewhere. And they kept her right throughout the war until she eventually came to Canada. Okay? And now, when I, when I think of all this, Oh, and then my brother. My brother had joined the American Air Force. And he was a bomber pilot. And over the oil fields of Romania, Priosti, his plane was hit. But he was lucky that he and two other young Irish boys managed to parachute before the plane blew up. And eventually went back to his unit and in 1948, he and one of the Irish boys, who was not Jewish, went to Israel to help to establish the Israeli Air Force with many others. When it was all over, the next afternoon on June the 4th, day before D-Day, our planes took off. Now, when you... Was there a realization in you that you there maybe you wouldn't come back? Well, when you go into battle, that always happens. But when you're young, you don't think of it that often, okay? So it says it could happen, hopefully not to me. Anyhow, we took off. Six gliders took off, each carrying uh, up to 20-odd specially trained commandos. Our target was Pegasus Bridge. Can you show it? Uh, Ross, can you pull up picture number five? That's a very five. important, yeah. Is that the picture? That's it. And if you look carefully, on the right, one of those gliders is mine. Oh, on that, yeah. Yeah, 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 okay. Now, this was after it was captured, so before there would be guards on the... Oh, yeah, 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 that's, we took, we took photos of that after, but we landed, okay, and our, jo our most difficult job was to kill the eight guards and the eight guards standing by. We could not use our guns, otherwise we'd wake the garrison about half a mile away. So we had, imagine it, at that age, at just about 18, to use bayonets and knives to kill human beings, which we did. During the night, parachutists joined us. And I remember our officer said to me, the parachute is coming down. Maxwell, find out if they're ours. I said, I hope so. <laughs> Anyhow, they were ours. So we held and watched this amazing, amazing invasion. 
And that you may have seen. Oh, the West Wall Bridge. June the 7th. Yeah. So after D-Day, after uh, they successfully breached the beach. Yeah. Um, how the Canadians, incidentally, went furthest in on the first day. So um, we were evacuated. You were evacuated back yeah. to yeah, back to England. Back yeah. to England. Yeah. yeah, and then we got a wonderful reception. We got two weeks leave, but General Montgomery wanted to end the war by Christmas. Wait, General Montgomery was the general of of the British of the British, and he wanted to end the war by Christmas. So he was going to send us to Holland, 30,000. Now, a young officer flew over the area, reconnaissance, and he came back and he said to General Montgomery, there's a German tank division just stationed just outside Arnhem. I would not send them because they will cut to be cut to pieces. And General Montgomery said to him, you have not been well, so I'm sending you home on leave. He didn't want to stop that. Anyhow, so on September the 14th, no, wait a minute, the 14th, the 17th, yeah, the September the seventeenth. The seven we we landed there. We got such an unbelievable reception by the Dutch people. They brought out bottles and things. And I remember <laughs> later a little girl came over to me and said, "Chewing gum, chewing gum." A Dutch girl, so I gave her chewing gum. Anyhow, then we started digging trenches. However, the second day, the Germans knew we were there, and they started shooting down gliders and parachutes as they came. There were two sections. We were further back from the bridge. These others were landing towards the bridge and quite a few were shot down. Now, our general, when he had a meeting with Montgomery, said to him, how long will it take the tanks from Nijmegen to come to Arnhem? He says, two days. I said, well, let me tell you this, General Montgomery. We can only hold out at the most for three days medicines, painkillers, food, water. Anyhow, the battle started and the Germans bombarded us every day. Every day we had casualties. And people from the Red Cross came and took them in. And our troops could only get as far as the bottom of the bridge. The people from Nijmegen couldn't get to us. Nobody, the tanks were stuck. And we had nothing to eat. And some of the Dutch people, men and women, even 
elderly try to bring us food. If the German, some succeeded, if the German caught them, they shot them right there. So we were mixing, and as people died, we had a little bit of their ration. And we were actually eating grass, grass. with the pieces of, of bread we had. On the seventh day, one, my officer of the area said to me, Maxwell, you're about the fittest. Why don't you go to the Hotel Hartenstein and find out what's happening? I got out of the trench, went about 10, 15 yards with a huge tank battle started shooting straight at us. And I was lifted up in the air, turned around that side and smashed against the tree. And I became completely gone, unconscious. And then I woke up and I heard somebody scream. It was me screaming with pain. My uniform had top had been torn off and I became unconscious again. And then I woke up and saw two members of the Red Cross with their bands. These were actually conscientious objectors, but they volunteered to come with us. They didn't want to kill, but they are willing to save people. So they said, hey, this kid is still alive. So they gave me some pills, bandaged my broken hand, and my thigh was sticking out, and they took me to a makeshift hospital with a red cross and put me down next to a guy who'd lost part of his left leg. And he said to me, don't go to sleep because if you do, you'll never wake up. And I was lying there with all the pain and everything. I said, listen, we're gonna die here. Why don't you and I take a chance and go through the German lines, okay? Maybe they'll be nice and take us to the hospital. If not, they'll shoot us, we'll die anyhow. So you took the chance. But, so anyhow, we decided to go there. But an armistice had been arranged for 36 hours. And they actually picked us up, put us in the truck, and drove us to the Queen Wilhelmina Hospital. But on the way, as we came out, saw the most horrible things. <laughs> Maybe 30 or so men, women, yes, and children were hanging by their throat across the street. Their faces already black, and it says, this happens to traitors and collaborators. When we got to the hospital, we were lucky they gave us something to eat and we put into bed. It took a doctor three days to get to me, okay? And eventually, maybe 20 or so of us were transferred to the SS barracks in Appledorn. And they started to interrogate us. How many troops are coming? Who is this? We didn't know any of us. Anyhow, the next day, uh, the evening, two SS officers came and one said, the best thing we can do is kill those bastards. But the other, the high-ranking officer said, you can't do that because if you do, you'll be a war criminal 
and they will find you wherever you are. So eventually, they put us on the train. So I think that means the Germans kind of. I think that means the Germans kind of knew they were going to lose the war then. Well, yes. no, no. This guy thought they're going to win it, okay? But the officer said, "In six months, they'll be in Berlin. You'll become a war criminal." So they put us on the train. So then you were transported to to a place called Fallingbostel 11B near Hanover. When we got there, the next day it was about 11, 11.30, and they wouldn't let us in. You know why? Why? They were giving away lunch, and they wanted us to miss it. But next door to us was a Russian camp, right next door. When they saw that we had nothing to eat, they threw their own bread over the wire to us. We didn't realize what a sacrifice that was because you only got one big piece of bread and some lousy soup a day. So we were always grateful. Yeah. And how did you go from being in that, that camp to... Well, on, I mean, I want the details. There are too many details. Awful ones, some were not. But what happened was on June the 1st, no, no, May the 1st, okay, yeah, May the 1st, a British tank came, the Germans had already left, a British tank came into the camp and liberated us. Now, I just wanted to mention, the way they treated the Russians was sickening. There was one big fat German who would say, every day I'm going to get myself a Ruski. What did he mean? He would set his two big dogs on one of them and try to really hurt them. But one day they made out of wood a knife and they killed the dogs. So what happened? They took 50 Russians and shot them. They were awful. The day we were liberated, the commanding officer said, you can go into town and do whatever you want, I don't care what, but you only have one day to do it. So whatever they did, that, that was their business. Do you know what now, they did? Rape, everything, steal, whatever they want to do. I just have one little story to tell, then I'm finished with that. The second day, a friend and I were outside, we were waiting to be evacuated. And two Russian officers came, and they saw my navigation watch. And they said, I want it. I said, what will you give me for it? They said, how about one of our Jeeps and gasoline? We said, okay. We put some bread and milk and what cheese into and we went for a ride. He gave you a Jeep for a watch? Yes. Yeah. Well, what did they care? It's not their Jeep. Oh. You know, it's the Russian army. <laughs> what the... And we gave him my watch. So we went by uh, Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, but it says to the right, kinder transport, children transport. So as we drove down, within a mile or so, we came to an enclosed barbed wire enclosed. We saw the most horrible sights. Dozens and dozens of children, dead and dying, being eaten by wild dogs. 
So we honked our horn, and the dogs ran away. And a little girl came over to my friend and put her arm around him and said, Papa, Papa. And the woman came and explained. She said, this girl's father died a long time ago in the army, but any time she, saw, she sees uh, a, a, a soldier, she thinks he's their father. So anyhow, she said, I have 250 uh, girls here, boys and girls, and nobody helps us. 10 or 15 die every day. So we promised we'd come back the next day with food. And we came on the way, I saw a, a doll in a window of a little store. So I gave him four cigarettes. And her name was Hannah. So we came back the next day, we gave them food. And uh, I said to the woman, where's Hannah? I have a doll for her. She said, I'm sorry. Hannah died in the night. Her last words were, Papa, Papa, Papa. Yeah, roll again. All right, so I have a question for you. Um, yeah. I heard that Winston Churchill knew that what was going on in the concentration camps in uh, Auschwitz. Yes, yes, So yes. why didn't he bomb the, the train um, tracks? Well, wait, wait. I, I, one part of when we were going towards the camp, okay, the tracks were bombed six times. And many years later, when I was speaking to a large group of American, Canadian, and French Air Force officers, I said, and British, how is it you bombed the tracks to Hanover six times? Why didn't you once bomb the damn tracks to Auschwitz? Deathly silence. But when the meeting was over, okay, a British and a Canadian officer came to me and they said, we were specifically told not to bomb Auschwitz, the tracks. And I said, why? Because Mr. Churchill and Mr. Roosevelt knew in 1942 about the concentration camp. People escaped and showed them pictures. But their advisor said to them, What's the point of rescuing the Jews? Nobody, what are we doing? What are we going to do with them? Nobody wants them. That's how it didn't happen. Um, now, did you always want to talk about the war? Because I could see why someone would want to just forget all about it. Cause do of its do you know that I used to have nightmares, especially after I spoke? because it brought it all back. So, how did it all start? At a wedding. Yes. No, no, no. Yes. I had a lovely secretary, a Chinese girl, and she invited me to the wedding. And she seated me with some people, and this snooty, snooty Englishman said to me, and what did you do? during the war. I guess you uh, didn't You didn't join the He thought first I was from Germany. I oh. said, no, I lived in Britain. He says, I guess you made sure you didn't have to go into the army to let others do the fighting for you. 
I says, no, but next to me on my other table sat a guy I had, he invited me to speak at the Legion, and I did. And this guy was also an ex-Marine. So he got up, grabbed that Englishman by the throat, picked him up and said, if you don't apologize to this man, I beat the shit out of you. He did that at the wedding? Yes, yeah. And he did, a, and don't you sit with that prick, he says. You come and sit with us. And he said, why don't you tell your stories to people? And that's really technically how I started. I think that it's really interesting for the younger generation, yeah, especially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Do you know in how many schools I've been speaking? Upper Canada, York School. Oh, I forgot one thing. When I spoke at York School, of course, I told them I was kicked out of the school and I could never get my high school graduation certificate. If you go into the newspapers in the York School, you will find that a month later, the principal called me and said the teachers and the three uh, 1,300 students insist that you get a special honorary graduation certificate. All the newspapers were there and the TV was there. And I got my certificate. Now, I have another question for yeah. you. Um, now, you fought with with weapons and tanks and planes yeah. because it was needed to stop Hitler and yeah, fascism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you think there's an issue nowadays with like gun violence? There's been mass shootings at Walmart's at concerts, just, at uh, schools. Walmart just stopped. They're not selling gun, those guns anymore, as of yesterday. No, but there was a mass shooting at, yeah, at yeah, Walmart. Yeah, I know. I, I follow it all. Yeah. There's been at schools, at synagogues. Yeah, at, at, at mosques, everywhere. Yeah, at Gurdwaras, which is my place of worship. Yeah. So I my know. question to you is, you use weapons because you had to. Okay. Do you think that today... A civilian should really be allowed to have do you, do you know, a weapon in, like in that. In Australia and New Zealand, there's hardly any of that happening. And the U.S. is has all these enormous weapons. Something has to be done and will be done. That's why when I said to you before, when I visit every five years, I go to Holland. The cemetery, it was in there, it says, for your tomorrows, we gave you our todays. And I said, if these young men would have a chance to get up and look at the world today, they would say, what the hell have you done with the tomorrows we gave you? It is horrible. Every five minutes, even here in Canada now, it's coming. There's more and more shooting. Something has to be done. Either that's extreme that if somebody uses a gun to kill people, the death penalty should be there, right there, and not waiting six years to do it. They should almost be like uh, before a tribunal and said, this is it, you did it on purpose, you attacked the church, you attacked the, the, the synagogue, you attacked the mosque, you, your death penalty is yours. That's, that, but yeah, but that's really hard to do because especially in like America, I like know. guns are a part of their history. I know they have the National Rifle Association. And I just heard somebody yesterday, last night, he said, 
if we don't have guns, the criminals will have them anyhow. They'll kill us all. So what do you say? How? I, I really I, don't. I wish I knew. I wish uh, I knew. What, something has to be done. Is it the specific people? Is it a mental health issue that... You, do you know what? I have to tell you something. I speak a lot in the U.S. And I, I mean, I don't tell that often, but when they were all running for president, including Trump, they've asked me to come and speak at a big Republican convention. I said, why is a Canadian interested in the American election? I said, because whoever is president of the United States is also supposed to be leader of the free world. Okay? And here is the problem. When and there was no leadership the last eight years, I said, okay? And President Obama said, if ever they use gas, we will take him out. You know, the Syrian president, yeah, yeah. he used gas. He didn't do a thing. And we have three, 400,000 Syrians dead. Something has to be done. And I was listening to what most of them said, and I predicted that Trump would win the nomination although the newspaper showed Hillary winning by 7%. Now, whether he did things right or wrong, I'll leave it to you. There are so many jobs available in the U.S. They can't cope with it. The stock market is up. I don't know, but you know what bothers me? The hate between the two sides in the U.S. Between Democrats and but, Republicans. Absolutely. I know a mother that has two sons. The two sons hate each other. One is a Democrat, the other one a Republican. I know two guys who used to play bridge together. For, they don't talk to each other. They, they, I go to something called current events every Monday in the U.S. They come to blows almost. So that's how they hate us. How can there be peace in the world when the Americans hate each other? Yeah, it's it's not as bad as in Canada, but I no, st no. I still think that if you ask any kid, they'll they'll say F Doug Ford because yeah, yeah. he cuts so much on education I know, and I know, I know that. But the other thing I say to them, look, your elections last four years, from one to the next. Ours last three months. But even if we don't like Trudeau, let's say if we kick him out, we don't hate him. Uh, you know what I mean? There isn't this hate between us. Unfortunately, there is in the U.S. And you think that's maybe the reason why there's so much more like yeah. anti-Semitism or... Well, there's anti-everything, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you see, I've always found this. When something goes wrong in the world, they hate the Jews. I mean, they used to say, look at the rich Jews. I didn't have a piece of bread to eat, but I'm a rich Jew. Yeah. And it's just so weird to think about because isn't Germany supposed to be a country that's like smart, educated people? Do you know How does that whole country become something so dark? I had so dark? a lady explain to me how the children died in Auschwitz. 
a, uh, a Christian lady who had been to Auschwitz recently, he said, how is it possible that the most educated nation in Europe, like Germany, would do things like that? What's the explanation? Yeah, that, that, that was going to be my, my next question. How do we hold on to the freedom that your people fought for? Well, is it by spending? Isn't that right what I said? What the hell have you done with the tomorrows yeah. we gave you? Is it by educating the people about the atrocities and Nazi but, Germany? But you know what? I, my personal opinion, the kids in school are not educated the right way. They believe, pardon me, everything's coming to them, that you don't have to earn them. Look at their democratic programs. Free education, free housing, free everything. Where are you going to get that from? They think that they're entitled to it? I don't know how. Yeah, I think even I sometimes, I take things for granted. Like I don't think anyone realizes that just how how much people sacrifice to get the the yes. side we have today yeah yeah and how do we defend it how i think but i think there's always good people have you watched the movie schindler's list schindler's list of course yeah of course. so there's always like good people well how about the story i told you about christmas eve yeah i mean could you know anything better? Yeah, and even the SS officer that gave you the letter. Yes, yeah, there's always somebody. Oh, the people who took my sister in, okay, they told the Germans she's going to, in France, she's going to look after their children, Francois and Gerard, four and six years old. The guy himself was an auto mechanic, so he repaired cars, and he repaired his assessments car. And the assessment said to him, soon after he took my sister, if you ever have any problems, here is my card. You can call me. He knew that he took a Jew little Jewish girl. So they're always... And have you heard of Pastor Niemüller? No. Well, look him up. Very important. A German pastor who said the following. When they came for the communists, I didn't speak up. When they came for the socialists, I didn't speak up. When they came for the Jews, I turned the other way. When they finally came for me, nobody give a, gave a damn, and there was nobody to speak up for me. Okay? <coughs> yeah, so Mr. Martin Maxwell, you have lived a life with, with so much meaning. Yeah, I want to personally thank you for sharing some of that, some of that with us today. I know that you and your wife probably have a very busy schedule, so I just want to, no, no. I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to do this. Uh, I wish you two all the best. Thank you, thank you, listen, and thank you for doing what you are doing. <laughs>